Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. You're listening to The Dry by Jane Harper. Read for you by Stephen Shanahan. Chapter 4 The yellow police tape was still hanging in strips around the door of Luke Hadler's farmhouse. It caught the morning light as Fork parked next to the police car on a patch of dead grass out the front. The sun was still some way from its peak position, but Fork's skin was already tingling from the heat as he got out of the car. He put his hat on and surveyed the house. He hadn't needed directions. He'd spent almost as much time at that house growing up as he had at his own. Luke hadn't changed much about the place since he'd taken it over from his parents, Falk thought as he rang the bell. The chime echoed deep inside, and he was struck by the feeling of having travelled back in time. He felt such an uneasy certainty that a cocky 16-year-old would swing open the door that he almost took a step back. Nothing moved. Windows shrouded by closed curtains gazed out like a pair of blinded eyes. Falk had lain awake for most of the night thinking about what Jerry had said. In the morning he'd rung and told Jerry he could stay in town a day or two, only until the weekend. It was Thursday, he was expected back at work on Monday. But in the meantime, he would go to Luke's farm. He would look at the financials for Barb. It was the least he could do. Jerry's tone made it clear he agreed. It was almost literally the least Falk could do. Falk waited for a moment then made his way around the side of the building. The sky loomed huge and blue over yellow fields. In the distance, a wire fence kept a shadowy tangle of bushland at bay. The property was very isolated, Falk noticed properly for the first time. It had always felt full of life when he was young. His own childhood home may have only been a short bike ride away, but it was completely invisible somewhere over the horizon. Looking around now, Only one other house was in sight. A sprawling grey building hunched on the side of a distant hill. Ellie's house. Falk wondered if her father and cousin still lived up there and instinctively turned his head away. He wandered through the yard until he found Sergeant Greg Rako in the biggest of three barns. The officer was on his hands and knees in the corner rummaging through a pile of old boxes. A redback, nestled still and shiny in her web, was ignoring the activity two metres away from her. Fork rapped on the metal door and Rako twisted around, his face streaked with dust and sweat. Jesus, you gave me a start, didn't hear anyone coming. Sorry, Aaron Fork, I'm a friend of the Hadlers. Your receptionist said you were here. He pointed to the redback. You seen that, by the way? Yeah, thanks, there are a couple around. Rako stood and pulled off his work gloves. He attempted to brush the grime off his navy uniform trousers, but gave up as it made things worse. His neatly pressed shirt had sweat rings under the arms. 
He was shorter than Fork and built like a boxer with curls cut close to his scalp. His skin was Mediterranean olive, but his accent was pure country Australia. He had a lift to his eyes that made him look like he was smiling even when he wasn't. Fork knew, because he wasn't smiling now. Jerry Hadler called and said something about you stopping by, Rako said. Sorry to do this, mate, but you got some ID? Had a few nut jobs prowling around, sightseeing or something, I don't know. Up close, he was older than Fork had first thought. Maybe 30. Fork noticed the sergeant discreetly check him over. Open, yet cautious. Fair enough. Fork handed over his driver's licence. Rako took it like he'd been expecting something else. I thought Jerry said you were a cop. Just here in a personal capacity, Fork said. So not officially. Not at all. Something flashed across Rako's face that Fork couldn't read. He truly hoped this wasn't going to descend into a pissing contest. I'm an old mate of Luke's, back when we were teenagers. Rako looked at the licence carefully before handing it back. Jerry said you needed access to the bank statements, account books, stuff like that. Sounds about right. Something going on there I should know about? Bob asked me to have a look, Fork said. As a favour. Right. Despite being several centimetres shorter, Rako almost managed to look Fork straight in the eye. Look, if Jerry and Barb say you're good, I'm not going to stuff you around for the sake of it. But they're pretty vulnerable right now, so you come across anything I need to hear, you make sure I hear it, yeah? No worries, just here to help them out. Fork couldn't help glancing over Rako's shoulder. The cavernous barn was swelteringly hot and plastic skylights gave everything a sickly yellow tinge. A tractor stood idle in the middle of the concrete floor and various bits of machinery Fork couldn't identify lined the walls. A hose attachment snaked out of the nearest one near his feet. He thought it might be for milking but wasn't sure. He would have known once. Now it all looked vaguely like instruments of torture to his city eye. Fork nodded towards the boxes in the corner. What are you looking for in there? (laughs) Nice try, mate, but you said it yourself, you're here in a personal capacity, Rako said. Bank statements will be in the house. Come on, I'll show you the study. It's all right, Fork took a step back. I know where it is, thanks. As he turned to leave, he saw Rako's eyebrows lift. If the guy had been expecting a fight over territory, Fork thought, he wasn't going to find one here. Still, he had to admire the man's dedication. It was early, but it looked like Rako had been up to his elbows for hours. Fork started towards the house. Stopped. Thought for a moment. Barb Hadler may have heard doubts, but Rako seemed like a cop who took things seriously. Fork turned back. Listen, he said. I don't know how much Jerry told you, but I know when I'm in charge it's a hell of a lot easier when I know what's going on. Less margin for a stuff-up. Rako listened in silence as Fork told him Barb's theory of money troubles and debts being called in. You think there's anything in it? I don't know. I'm sure there'll be money problems, you can tell that by looking around. Whether that means someone other than Luke pulled the trigger is another question. Rako nodded slowly. Thanks. I appreciate it. No worries. I'll be in the study. Fork was barely halfway across the scorched yard when Rako called out. Hey, wait a sec! 
The sergeant wiped his face with his forearm and squinted against the sun. You were good friends with Luke, yeah? Long time ago. Say Luke wanted to hide something. Smallish. Any idea where he'd stash it? Falk thought for a moment. Realised he didn't really need to think about it. Maybe. What sort of thing? We find it, I'll show you. The last time Fork had laid on that particular patch of ground, the grass had been fresh and green. Now he could feel the yellow scrub scratching his stomach through his shirt. He'd led Rako round to the far side of the house, testing the weatherboards with his foot. When he found the one he was looking for, he lay down and slid a stick under the bottom of the panel. It creaked a little under the strain, then gave way easily, coming loose in his hand. Fork looked up at Rako, standing over him. In there... Rako asked, pulling on his heavy-duty gloves. What did he used to hide? Anything, really. Toys and junk food when we were kids. Booze a bit later. Nothing too exciting. The usual stuff kids don't want parents to see. Rako knelt down. He thrust his arm into the gap up to the elbow and scrabbled around, feeling blindly. He withdrew it, clutching a handful of dried leaves and an old packet of cigarettes. He dumped them on the ground by his knees and went back in. This time, he pulled out the remains of a soft porn magazine. It was curled and yellowed at the edges and something had eaten holes through the important bits. He tossed it aside in irritation and tried again, pushing his arm in as far as it would go. Reluctantly, he came out empty-handed. Nothing. Here, forked Jesse for the gloves. I'll have a go. He and Luke had never used to use gloves, Falk thought, as he thrust his hand into the dead space. Anything lurking under a house was no match for the immortality of kids and teenagers. He fumbled around, feeling nothing but flat earth. Give me a clue what I'm looking for, he grunted. A box, probably, or some sort of packaging. Fork groped about, pushing his arm in as far as it would go. The hiding spot was empty. He pulled his hand out. Sorry, he said. It's been a while. Rako's knees clicked as he stood from his crouched position. He opened the battered cigarette packet, took one out, looked at it longingly, then slowly slid it back in. Neither of them spoke for a long moment. It's the shots, Rako said finally. From the shotgun that killed the Hadlers. They don't match. Don't match what? The brand Luke Hadley used... Is for years, as far as I can tell. The three shots fired that killed him and his family were Remington. The only ammunition I can find on this entire property is Winchester. Winchester? Yep. I noticed when the inventory came through from Clyde, and it's been picking at me ever since, Rako said. So that's it. A box of Remington shots, and I'd be a happier man. Falk pulled off the gloves. His hands were clammy. Clyde couldn't send over a couple of bodies to help you do a property search? Rako looked away, fiddled with the cigarette packet in his hands. Yeah, I don't know. Probably could. Right. Fork suppressed a smile. Rako may be sporting the uniform and talking the talk, but Fork had been around long enough to know the off-the-books probing when he saw it. Maybe Luke picked up a few odd spares somewhere, Fork suggested. Yeah? Definitely could have, Rako said.
Or the shots were the last in the box and he threw away the package? Yep. Although there was no sign of that in the household rubbish or his ute, and believe me, Rako gave a short laugh, <laughs> I've checked. Where haven't you searched yet? Rako nodded at the missing weatherboard. On this property, I think this officially makes everywhere. Fork frowned. It's a bit weird. Yeah, that's what I thought too. Fork said nothing, just stared at him. Rako was sweating hard. His face, arms and clothes were covered in grime and dust from scrabbling around in the baking heat of the sheds. What else? Fork said. There was a silence. What do you mean? All this effort, down on your hands and knees all morning in a dead man's barn in this heat, Fork said. There's something more, or at least you think there's more. There was a long pause. Then Rako breathed out. Yeah, he said. There's more. Chapter 5 They'd sat for a while by the side of the house, backs up against the wall beside the loose panel and grass prickling the backs of their legs, making the most of the thin slice of shade while Rako ran through the facts. He started with the slightly detached air of someone who'd said it all before. It was two weeks ago today, he said, fanning himself loosely with a crinkled porn mag. A courier with a delivery found Karen and made the emergency call. That came in at about 5.40pm. To you? And Clyde and the local GP. The dispatcher notifies us all. GP was closest, so he was first on the scene. Dr Patrick Lee. You know him? Fork shook his head. Anyway, he was first. Then I turned up a couple of minutes later. I pull up and the doors open and the docs crouched over Karen in the hall, checking her vitals or whatever. Rako paused for a long moment, staring out at the tree line with an unfocused gaze. I'd never met her, didn't even know who she was then, but he knew her. Had her blood all over his hands and he's yelling, kind of screaming at me, you know, she's got kids, there might be kids. So, Rako sighed and flipped open Luke's aged pack of cigarettes. He put one between his lips and offered the pack to Fork, who surprised himself by taking one. He couldn't remember the last time he'd smoked. He might easily have been in this very same spot with his late best friend next to him. For whatever reason, taking one now felt right. He leaned in as Rako lit the ends. Fork took a drag and immediately remembered why he'd kicked the habit easily. But as he breathed deep and the smell of the tobacco mingled with the tang of the eucalyptus trees, the heady sensation of being 16 again hit him like the rush of nicotine. So anyway, Rako picked up. His voice was quieter now. The doc's yelling and I bolt off through the house. No idea who's in there, what I'm going to find if there's someone about to step around a door with a shotgun. I want to call out to the kids, but... I realise I don't even know their names, so I'm yelling, Police, it's okay, come out, you're safe, or something, but I don't even know if it's true. He took a long drag, remembering. And then I hear this crying, this sort of wailing. So I follow it, not knowing what's waiting for me. And I go into the nursery and I see that little girl in her cot, screaming blue murder and... Honestly, 
I've never been so glad to see a kid bawling her eyes out in all my life. Ranko blew a plume of smoke into the air. Because she was fine, he said. I couldn't believe it. She was scared, obviously, but not hurt that I could see. And I remember thinking at that moment that it might all still be okay. Yes, it was sad about the mum, tragic, but thank God at least the kids were okay. But then I look across the hall and a door's ajar. He carefully ground his cigarette butt into the dirt, not looking at Fork. Fork felt a cold dread seep through him, knowing what was to come. And I can see it's another kid's room. All blue paint and car posters, you know, boys' room. And there's no sound coming from that one. So I go across the hall and push open the door, and then it definitely wasn't okay at all. He paused. That room was like a scene from hell. That room was the worst thing I've ever seen. They sat in silence until Rako cleared his throat. Come on, he said, pulling himself to his feet, shaking his arms as if shedding the memory. Fork stood and followed him towards the front of the house. The response teams arrived from Clyde shortly after that, Rako went on as they walked. Police, paramedics, it was nearly half past six by the time they got there. We'd searched the rest of the house and there's no one else there, thank Christ, so everyone was desperately trying to phone Luke Hadler. At first people are worried, you know, how are we supposed to break this to him, but then there's still no answer and his car's not there and he hasn't come home and all of a sudden you could feel the mood start to shift. What was Luke supposed to have been doing then? A couple of the search and rescue volunteers, mates of his, knew he'd been helping a friend cull rabbits on his property that arvo. A guy called Jamie Sullivan. Someone phoned and Sullivan confirmed it, but said Luke had left his farm a couple of hours earlier by that point. They'd reached the front door, and Rako pulled out a set of keys. When there was still no sign of Luke, and no answer on his phone, we called some more of the search and rescue team in. Paired them up with officers, sent them out looking. It was a terrible couple of hours. We had unarmed searchers tramping through fields and bushland, not sure what they would find. Luke dead, alive, no idea what kind of state he'd be in. We were all panicking we'd find him holed up somewhere with a gun and a death wish. In the end, one of the search guys stumbled across his ute more by luck than anything. Parked up in some crappy clearing about three kilometres away. There was no need to worry after all. Luke was dead in the back, missing most of his face. His own gun, licensed, registered, completely legit, still in his hand. Rako unlocked the farmhouse door and pushed it open. So it seemed like that was that, pretty much done and dusted. This, he stepped aside so Fork could see right down the long hallway, is where it starts to get strange. The entrance hall was muggy and stank of bleach. A side table piled with household clutter of bills and pens sat askew against a far wall, shoved from its original position. The tiled floor was ominously clean. The entire hallway had been scrubbed down to the original grout. The industrial cleaners have been through, so there aren't any nasty surprises, Rako said. They couldn't save the carpet in the kids' bedroom. Not that you'd want to. Family photos covered the walls. 
The frozen poses looked somehow familiar, and Falk realised he'd seen most of them at the funeral. The whole scene felt like a grotesque parody of the warm family home he'd known. Karen's body was found right here in the hallway, Rako said. The door was open so the courier saw her straight away. Was she running for the door? Fogg tried to imagine Luke chasing his own wife through their own house. No, that's just it. She was answering it. Shot by whoever was standing on the doorstep, you can tell from the position of the body. But tell me this. When you come home at night, does your wife answer the door to you? I'm not married, Fogg said. Well, I am, and call me liberated, but I've got a key to my own house. Fogg considered. Catch her by surprise, maybe? He said, playing out the scenario in his mind. Why bother? Dad comes home waving a loaded shotgun. I reckon they'd still be pretty bloody surprised. He's got them both inside the house, knows the layout. Too easy. Fork positioned himself inside the hall and opened and closed the door a few times. Open, the doorway was a rectangle of blinding light compared with the dimness of the hall. He imagined Karen answering the knock, a little distracted maybe, perhaps annoyed by the interruption, blinking away the brightness for the crucial second it took her killer to raise a gun. Just strikes me as odd, Rako said. Shooting her in the doorway, all it did was give that poor kid a chance to piss his pants and bolt, not necessarily in that order. Rako looked past Fork. Which brings me to my next point, he said, when you're ready. Fork nodded and followed him down the bowels of the hall. As Rako snapped on the light in the small blue bedroom, Fork's first dizzy impression was that someone was renovating. A child's bed had been shoved against the far wall at an angle, stripped back to the mattress. Toys were piled in boxes and stacked haphazardly beneath posters of football players and Disney characters. The carpet had been ripped out, exposing untreated floorboards. Fork's boots left patterns in a layer of sawdust. The boards in one corner had been heavily sanded. A stain still remained. Rako lingered by the doorway. Still difficult for me to be in here, he said with a shrug. This had once been a nice bedroom. Fork knew. Twenty years ago it had been Luke's own. Fork had slept there himself many times, whispering after lights out, holding his breath and stifling giggles when Barb Hadler called through to them to shut up and go to sleep. Wrapped warm in a sleeping bag, not far from those floorboards with their awful stain. This room had been a good space. Now... Like the hall, it stank of bleach. Can we open the window? Better not, Rako said. Got to keep the blinds down. Caught a couple of kids trying to take photos soon after it happened. Rako pulled out his tablet computer and tapped it a few times. He handed it to Fork. On the screen was a photo gallery. The little boy's body's been removed, Rako said, but you can see how the room was found. In the photos... The blinds were wide open, spilling light onto a horrendous scene below. The wardrobe doors were flung wide open and the clothes had been roughly pushed aside. A large wicker toy box was overturned. On the bed, a spaceship duvet was rucked up on one side as though tossed back to check what was under it. The carpet was mostly beige, except for the one corner where a rich red-black pool seeped out from behind a large, 
upended laundry basket. For a moment, Falk tried to imagine Billy Hadler's last moments, huddled behind the laundry basket, hot urine dribbling down his leg as he tried to silence ragged breaths. You got kids? Rako asked. Falk shook his head. You? One on the way, a little girl. Oh, congratulations. We've got an army of nieces and nephews, though. Not here, back home in South Australia. A few around Billy's age, a couple a bit younger, Rako said, taking back the tablet and scrolling through the photos. And the thing is, my brothers know every one of their kids' hiding places. You send them blindfolded into their kids' bedrooms and they could find them in two seconds. He tapped the screen. Every possible way I look at these photos, it looks like a search, Rako said. Someone who didn't know Billy's hiding spots methodically working his way through. Is he in the cupboard? No. Under the bed? No. It's like the kid was hunted down. Fork stared hard at the dark smudge that had once been Billy Hadler. Show me where you found Charlotte. The nursery across the hall was decorated in yellow. A musical mobile dangled from the ceiling above an empty space. Jerry and Barb took the cot, Rako explained. Falk looked around the room. It felt so different from the others. Furniture and carpet still intact. No acrid bleach stink in there. It had the feel of a sanctuary, untouched by the horror that had unfolded outside the door. Why didn't Luke kill Charlotte? Falk said. The popular money's on conscience and guilt kicking in. Falk walked out, back across the hall to Billy's bedroom. He stood at the bloodstain in the corner, turned 180 degrees and strode back across the hall into Charlotte's room. Eight steps, Falk said, but I'm pretty tall, so we'll call it nine for most people. Nine steps from Billy's body to where Charlotte was lying like a sitting duck. And Luke would have had the adrenaline going, blood pumping, red mist, the works. So nine steps. The question is, is that enough time for a total change of heart? Doesn't sound like enough to me. Fork thought about the man he'd known. What had once been a clear picture was now distorted and fuzzy. Did you ever meet Luke, he said? No. He could change his mood like flipping a coin. Nine steps could be eight more than he needed. But for the first time since he'd returned to Kiwara, Fork felt a pinprick of genuine doubt. It's supposed to be a statement though, isn't it? Something like this. It's personal. He murdered his entire family. That's what you want people to say. Luke's wife of seven years is bleeding out on the hall floor and he spent, what, two minutes, three, turning the bedroom upside down to murder his own son? He's planning to kill himself when he's finished, so if it was Luke, he hesitated slightly on the word if, why does his daughter get to live? They stood for a moment, both looking at the mobile hanging still and silent above the empty cot space. Why slaughter a whole family bar the baby? Fork turned it back and forth in his mind, until he could think of a few reasons, but only one good one. Maybe whoever was here that day didn't kill the baby, because they just didn't need to kill the baby, Fork said finally. Nothing personal about it doesn't matter who you are. Thirteen-month-olds don't make good witnesses. Chapter 6 
They're not crash hot about me coming in here generally, Rako said with a note of regret as he put two beers on the table at the fleece. It lurched lopsidedly under the weight, slopping a centimetre of liquid over the scratched surface. He'd been home to change out of his uniform and had returned with a thick file labelled Hadler under his arm. I'm not great for business. Everyone always has to make a big show of putting their car keys away. They glanced over at the barman. It was the same large, bearded bloke from the night before. He was watching them over the top of a newspaper. Policeman's lot. Cheers. Fork raised his glass and took a long swallow. He'd always been able to take or leave the booze, but at that moment he was glad of it. It was early evening quiet in the pub, and they were holed up alone in a corner. On the far side of the room, three men stared with bovine blankness at greyhound racing on the TV. Fork didn't recognise them, and they ignored him in turn. In the back room, the poker machines blinked and whistled. The air conditioning was blowing arctic cold. Rako took a sip. So what now? Now you tell Clyde you've got concerns, Fork said. I go to the Clyde cops now, it'll send them straight into arse-covering mode. Rako frowned. You know what'll be going through their heads if they think they've stuffed this up. They'll make a gymnastics team bending over backwards to prove their investigation was sound. I know I would. I'm not sure you've got a choice. Something like this. It's not a one-man job. We've got Barnes. Who? My constable at the station. So that's three of us. That's only two of you, mate, Falk said. I can't stay. I thought you told the Hadlers you would. Fork rubbed the bridge of his nose. The pokies behind him clanged more loudly. He felt like the noise was inside his head. For a couple of days, that means one or two. Not for the duration of an investigation, an unofficial one at that. I've got a job to get back to. Fine, Rako spoke like it was obvious. Stay for the couple of days and it doesn't have to be anything on the books. Do what you said you'd do on the money side. As soon as we get something solid, I'll go to Clyde. Fork said nothing. He thought about the two boxes of bank statements and documents he'd taken from the Hadler's place that were now sitting upstairs on his bed. Luke lied. You lied. He picked up their empty glasses and took them back to the bar. See him again? The barman hauled his bulk off a stool and put his newspaper down. He was the only person Fork had seen working in the place since yesterday. Listen... Fork said as he watched a clean glass put under the tap. That room I'm in, likely to be available a bit longer? Depends. The barman set one beer on the counter. I've been hearing one or two whispers about you, my friend. Have you? I have. And while I welcome the business, I don't welcome trouble, see? Tricky enough running this place as is. The trouble won't come from me. Just comes with you. Not much I can do about that. You know I'm police, though. I did hear of that indeed, but out here in the sticks at midnight with a few boozed-up fellas looking for aggro, those badges mean less than they should, you get me? Fine, well, up to you. He wasn't going to beg. The barman put the second glass on the counter with a half-smile. It's all right, mate. You can untwist your knickers. Your money's as good as the next man's, and that's good enough for me. He gave Fork his change and picked up the newspaper. He appeared to be doing the cryptic crossword. Take it as a friendly warning, though. There can be a funny lot around here. 
you find yourself in hot water. There's not always a lot of help at hand. He eyeballed Fork. Although, from what I hear, you don't need telling about that. Fork took both glasses back to the table. Rako was staring moodily at a soggy beer mat. You can lose the look, Fork said. You better fill me in on the rest. Rako slid the folder across the table. I've pulled this together from all the stuff I've got access to, he said. Fork glanced around the pub. It was still half empty, no one nearby. He flipped it open. The first page had a photo of Luke's ute taken from a distance. A pool of blood had collected by the back wheels. He closed the fire. Just give me the highlights for now. What do we know about the courier who found them? He's looking as clean as you'd want to be. Works for an established delivery firm. Has done for two years. He was delivering recipe books Karen had ordered online. That checks out. He was running late, last delivery of the day, first time he'd made a delivery to Kiwara. Says he rocked up, saw Karen lying in the doorway, chucked up his lunch into the flower bed and jumped back in his van. Made the emergency call from the main road. He left Charlotte in the house? Reckons he didn't hear her, Rako shrugged. Maybe he didn't. She'd been alone for a while, might have cried herself out by then. Fork turned to the first page of the file. Kept it open this time. He'd always assumed Luke had been found in the ute's driver's seat, but the images showed his body flat on its back in the cargo tray. The lip of the tray was open, and Luke's legs dangled over as though he'd been sitting on the edge. A shotgun by his side pointed towards the mess where his head would have been. His face was completely missing. You're right? Rako was watching him closely. Yeah. Fork took a long drink from his beer. The blood had spread across the bottom of the cargo tray, settling in the metal ridges. Forensics find anything useful in the tray? Fork asked. Rako checked his notes. Other than lots of blood, all Luke's, nothing particular noted, he said. I'm not sure how well they looked, though. They had the weapon, it was a working vehicle, he had all sorts of stuff in the back. Fork looked again at the photo, concentrating on the area around the body. Barely visible along the left interior side of the tray were four faint horizontal streaks. They looked fresh. Light brown against the dusty white paintwork. The longest was maybe 30 centimetres, the shortest about half that. They were in pairs of two, each pair about a metre apart. The placement wasn't particularly uniform. The right-hand streaks were horizontal. Those on the left had a slight tilt. What are these? Fork pointed and Rako leaned in. I'm not sure. Like I said, Ute would have carried all sorts. The Ute still here? Rako shook his head. Sent to Melbourne. It'll be cleaned up by now for sale or scrap, I reckon. Fork looked through the photos, hoping for a better view, but was disappointed. He read over the rest of the notes. Everything appeared fairly standard. Other than the hole in the front of his head, Luke Hadler was a healthy male. A couple of kilos over his ideal weight, slightly high cholesterol, no drugs or alcohol in his system. Fork said, What about the shotgun? Definitely Luke's gun used on all three of them. Registered, licensed. His fingerprints were the only ones on it. Where did he keep it normally? Secured lock box in the barn out the back. 
Rako said. The ammo, at least the Winchester stuff I've found, was locked away separately. He was pretty big on safety by the look of things. Fork nodded, only half listening. He was looking at the fingerprint report from the shotgun. Six crisp ovals, embroidered with tight whirls and lines. Two less clear, slight slippage, but still confirmed as belonging to the left thumb and right little finger of Luke Handler. The fingerprints are good, Falk said. Rako caught his tone, looked up from his notes. Yeah, really solid. People didn't take too much convincing after seeing them. Very solid, Falk said, sliding the report over the table to Rako. Maybe too solid? The guy's supposed to have just killed his family. He would have been sweating and shaking like an addict. I've seen worse than these taken under evidence conditions. Shit. Rako frowned at the prince. Yeah, maybe. Fork turned the page. What did forensics find in the house? They found everything. Seemed like half the community had traipsed through there at one time or another. About 20 different fingerprints, not including partials, fibres everywhere. I'm not saying Karen didn't keep the place clean, but it was a farm with kids. Witnesses? The last person to see Luke alive was this mate of his, Jamie Sullivan. Has a farm to the east of town. Luke had been helping him shoot rabbits. Arrived in the Arvo about three, left about 4.30, Sullivan reckons. Other than that, around the Hadless house, there's really only one neighbour who could have seen something. He was on his own property at the time. Rako reached for the report. Fork felt a heavy weight in his stomach. Neighbour's a strange bloke, though, Rako went on. Aggressive old bastard. No love lost for Luke, whatever that's worth. Not at all keen to assist the police with their inquiries. Mal Deacon, Falk said. He made a point of keeping his voice even. Rako looked up in surprise. That's right. You know him? Yeah. Rako waited, but Falk said nothing more. The silence stretched on. Well, anyway, Rako said, he lives up there with his nephew, bloke called Grant Dow, who wasn't home at the time. Deacon reckons he didn't see anything. Might have heard the shots, but didn't think anything of it. Thought it was farm stuff. Falk just raised his eyebrows. Thing is, what he did or didn't see might not matter anyway, Rako said, taking out his tablet and tapping the screen. A low-res colour image appeared. Everything was so still that it took Fork a minute to realise it was a video rather than a photograph. Rako handed in the tablet. Security footage from the Hadless farm. You're kidding. Fork gaped at the screen. Nothing fancy, barely a step up from a nanny cam, really, Rako said. Luke installed it after a spate of equipment burglaries around here a year ago. Few of the farmers have them. Records for 24 hours, uploads the footage to the family computer, gets wiped after a week if no one actively saves it. The camera appeared to be positioned above the largest barn. It was directed towards the yard to capture anyone coming or going. One side of the house was in shot, and in the upper corner of the screen, a slim slice of driveway was visible. Rako skipped through the recording until he found the spot he was looking for and paused it. Okay, this is the afternoon of the shootings. You can watch the whole day later if you want, but in a nutshell, the family leaves the house in the morning separately. Luke drives off in his ute just after 5am. 
headed out to his own fields as far as I've been able to tell. Then shortly after eight, Karen, Billy and Charlotte leave for school. She worked there part-time in an admin role and Charlotte was in the on-site crash. Rako tapped the screen, starting the footage. He passed Fork a pair of earphones and plugged them into the tablet. The sound was poor and muffled as wind buffeted the microphone. Nothing happens during the day, Rako said. Believe me, I've watched the entire thing in real time. No one comes and no one goes until 4.04pm when Karen and the kids get home. In the corner of the screen, a blue hatchback trundled by and disappeared. It was on an angle, visible only from the bonnet down to the tyres. Fork could just make out the front number plate. You can read that if you freeze it and blow it up, Rako said. It's definitely Karen's car. Above the electronic crackling, Fork heard the thud of a car door slamming, followed a moment later by a second one. Rako tapped the screen again. The image jumped. Then it's all quiet for nearly an hour. Again, I've checked. Until here, 5.01pm. Rako pressed play and let Fork watch. For a few long seconds, all was still. Then a shape moved in the corner. The silver ute was taller than the hatchback and only visible from the headlights down. The number plate was visible. Again, the vehicle was there and gone in less than a second. Luke's, Rako said. The image on screen was completely static, although the footage was still rolling. There was the thud of an invisible car door again then nothing for an agonising 20 seconds. Suddenly, a dull boom crashed in Falk's ears and he flinched. Karen. He felt his heart thumping in his chest. The scene was still again as the timer continued to tick over. 60 seconds gone, then 90. Falk realised he was holding his breath, willing there to be a different ending. He was both frustrated and grateful at that moment for the poor sound. Billy Hadler's screams would be the haunting kind. When the second boom came, it was almost a relief. Fork blinked once. There was no movement. Then three minutes and 47 seconds after the ute had first appeared, it rattled away through the corner of the screen. The back wheels, the bottom of the tray and the number plate of Luke Hadler's vehicle were all perfectly visible. No one else comes or goes until the courier 35 minutes later, Rako said. Fork handed the tablet back to him. He could still hear the muffled booms ringing in his ears. You seriously think there's doubt after seeing that? Fork said. It's Luke's ute, but you can't see who's driving it, Rako said. Plus the other stuff, the ammunition, killing Karen on the doorstep, the search in Billy's room. Fork stared at him. I don't get it. Why are you so convinced it wasn't Luke? You didn't even know him. Rako shrugged. I found the kids, he said. I had to see what Billy Hadler looked like after some monster killed him, and I'll never be able to unsee that. I want to make sure the right thing's been done by him. I know it seems crazy, and look, odds are probably Luke did do it. I admit that. But if there's a tiny chance that someone else has done this and got away with it? Rako shook his head and took a long drink. You know, I look at Luke Hadler, and on the surface, he had it all. Great wife, two kids, 
decent enough farm, respect in his community. Why would a man like that turn around one day and destroy his family? It makes no sense. I just can't understand how someone like him could do something like that. Falk rubbed a hand over his mouth and chin. It felt gritty. He needed a shave. Luke lied. You lied. Rako, he said. There's something about Luke you need to know. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. Make sure to follow this podcast to get the next episode. Or if you just can't wait, you can buy the audiobook of The Dry wherever books or audiobooks are sold. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.